Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. There is some interesting new and seemingly contradictory information on hate crimes and hate crime groups in this country and this region. On the one hand, growth in the number of hate crime groups has stabilized after a sharp increase over the last decade and a half. On the other, the number of hate crimes is rising. What's going on? We sat down yesterday with David Cunningham, sociology professor at Washington University. He is an expert on the subject of the Ku Klux Klan and analyzes other hate groups. I asked him to explain why the number of hate groups has stabilized after years of growth. Well, the growth initially, starting around the, the turn of the century, uh, was driven by, by two predominant factors. Uh, the first was the 2000 census that came out, and there was a lot of attention given to the fact around the census that self-identified white residents were going to be a numerical minority by around 2040, around 2043. Um, and that is one thing that really stoked a lot of the sense of threat among people who felt like whites were always a majority and should always be a majority. And then the second thing as we moved through uh, the last decade was, of course, the election of Barack Obama. So having an African-American president was something that was really driving that, that increase. So what we see more recently is certainly a climate that might be more conducive to these kinds of groups. But the the sort of acute threat that had motivated the growth of these organizations has largely disappeared. Elaborate on the word threat, if you would. What exactly are we talking about? It's, it's really a perception that one station in life is under siege in some way. So something, it might, it might be considered a birthright, but it might just be something that might be seen as an entitlement. So the world looks a particular way, and you're, you have a particular place in that world. And when the world is changing quite a bit uh, externally, there's a sense that not only will things look different, but also things that you could have taken for granted for yourself, for your children, may no longer exist. You're linking some of what we're talking about here to the campaign, the 2016 campaign, the election of Donald Trump. The growth of these groups has leveled off during his presidency and early on, but the number of hate crimes has gone up. It's really the paradox here. So the the motivation for these groups to form has largely eroded. But at the same time, the fact that these groups have grown so pronouncedly over the last 15 years uh, has really created a space where the people who had been in this world and then new supporters that could be coming in feel a, a new license to act. They feel like there's an opportunity to publicly express their views in ways that would have been more pronouncedly demonized prior to 2016. They feel comfortable coming out of the shadows now. Certainly. But it's important to understand that the people coming out of the shadows are not people who just woke up and decided, you know, these are their attitudes. These are people who have largely been affiliated with this world, uh, whether online or in real space, over the last decade oftentimes. Is it too strong a a conclusion to reach that the election of Donald Trump, he is in essence an enabler? I think in this sense that that's entirely accurate. There's certainly a climate where people are able to publicly express positions around white identity, around traditional America. The whole idea of make America great again is really consistent with this idea of recapturing a country that's backward looking and uh, and speaks to the kind of world that uh, some of these people would have seen as under siege under the Obama administration and prior. You've already identified these uh, these, these folks as primarily white people. What else can you tell me? What kind of a profile can you draw of the people who belong to these groups? 
It's difficult to draw too narrow of a profile. Certainly, um, some of the stereotypes around economic position, around region of the country, these things are actually break down here. If you look at the Southern Poverty Law Center is the preeminent organization that tracks these kinds of groups. If you look at what they call a hate map, so every year they're able to to produce this map, uh, you see a broad spread in terms of the location of these groups. And you see people of different ages and generations. You know, there used to be a stereotype that white nationalist adherents tended to be older, and that's no longer true. There's been a big push among uh, among youth, and the internet has really facilitated that. People have been able to come in through being exposed online to these ideas. So it's too it's hard to draw a, uh, a generational portrait in that way. And class-wise, I think it's much more diverse than most people would think. You get people from different walks of life who are adherents. How do we characterize the groups? Are they pretty consistently the same? Uh, yes and no. I mean, I, I, I think you have categories of groups that are the same. Um, so we can talk about white nationalist or white supremacist groups in a similar way as we might have talked about them a generation or two ago. However, some of the, the new organizations have a rhetoric around this that, that has evolved. Um, and so you'll hear the names of groups like Vanguard America, the Traditionalist Workers Party, Identity Europa. These are not groups that you would have heard about generations ago, like the Ku Klux Klan, et cetera, some of the more traditional white supremacist groups. So the overall ideology has not transformed uh, in any baseline sense in a significant way, but the particular groups and the way that they express some of their grievances and goals um, has evolved. And I think part of that is what's drawn in some of the, the younger set. Are there many of them in this region? The SPLC now reports that there are 24 active hate groups in Missouri as a whole. Um, There are a handful in St. Louis. One of the things, though, I I should say, you know, I did talk about the geographic diversity of these groups, but it it also is tricky to really pinpoint the locations of these groups because many of them are predominantly active online, meaning they might be organized in a local area, but their followings can be much more spread out as people are connecting through websites and chat rooms. Is it really fair, do you think, to call Donald Trump or the Trump administration an enabling factor when the largest spurt in the growth of these groups was actually under two other presidents? Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's important to spread out what's enabling the spread of organizations and what's enabling those organizations and members to act. And I think it does make sense to see that the present climate is enabling action by groups that had predominantly felt like they needed to stay in the shadows. It was just too risky for them to publicly express views and to undertake some of the public expressions of those views that we've seen. However, it's also on on the flip side, what has, as you say, enabled these organizations to form has often been a very different climate, a climate where people with these views felt like they were being marginalized severely in the country. Is it too early to draw any conclusions about the way the Justice Department looks at these crimes and these groups? Well, certainly there's a sense that the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department uh, has not placed the same sort of emphasis on these kinds of groups and crimes associated with these groups that they may have under the Obama administration. 
However, there, there's a longer story there where beginning with 9-11, in effect, there has been a, a real push when we think about terrorism and investigating terrorist threats. There was a real push after 9-11 to move away from thinking about white supremacist threats, white nationalist threats, and to think more about Islamic terrorism. And so I think we have a, a longer story where the Justice Department has placed many of its resources to investigating different kinds of terrorism, even though the number of acts of violence perpetrated by white supremacists has always exceeded this century the number of, say, jihadist acts or acts that are um, associated with Muslim terrorism. Is it fair to assume that the majority or certainly a large number of these acts of terrorism are against uh, Muslim and immigrants? The acts of terrorism themselves? Yeah. I mean, there, there certainly is a large set there. Um, and, you know, if you look at people mapping this out, there is a large spike targeting Muslims and, and immigrants soon after 9-11. And then we see a similar spike over the last year and a half or so. And, and certainly the rhetoric that's espoused around a Muslim ban, around, you know, building a wall, being anti-immigrant as a matter of policy has certainly, again, enabled uh, people who may have expressed these views more privately to really come out and feel like they could publicly target these people. There have been a number of stories in recent years, more likely recent months, about people like David Duke and Spencer and the fact that they, they've kind of gotten off scot-free in the sense that there hasn't been a loud outcry against them, particularly from the administration. That's certainly true. I mean, I think there there has been a loud outcry in, in certain sectors. And I think there's been a, a move, and I, I find this a really encouraging move, a, a sense that the administration and the Justice Department may not aggressively, say, prosecute these, these kinds of actions. What we have seen is a really re- revitalized uh, legal community where you have civic organizations that are forming to take on these kinds of cases that may have previously been taken on by the Justice Department directly. And so... Um, I think some of the revitalization we've seen in those sectors is a direct uh, reaction to the current administration's lack of interest and attention on these issues. The answer to this question may be very obvious, but what is it about the fact that whites are likely to be a a minority, if you will, uh, by 2043 and the Obama election that has folks so worried? I mean, the sense that a traditional America that really is at least implicitly seen as a white America and and the way people think about immigration, and we've seen this from our president who tries to differentiate immigrants that come from, you know, quote unquote, white nations and spaces versus immigrants that look more diverse in terms of ethnicity. Certainly, there there is a tacit sense that that is the true America and that is something that should be protected. Um, and so when we have more progressive ideals expressed by different administrations and governmental bodies, this is when you really tend to see it becoming a, a real recruiting hotbed for some of these organizations. Yeah, the, the fact that uh, Obama was our first black president, I mean, it's fairly obvious that that had a lot of people uh, concerned. Certainly. And, and what you saw more pronouncedly than anything after Obama's uh, first election is a huge rise in, in so-called patriot organizations. These are militia groups who really felt like the government was going to both take away their right to bear arms, so their right to protect themselves, and also any sort of rights that they felt they had enjoyed under American democracy and, and freedom. Um, and so we had this enormous spike in those kinds of organizations after Obama was elected. 
categorizing a crime as a hate crime is a difficult thing to do, is it not? Well, why, why is it so difficult? Well, it, it's difficult on a number of fronts. One is that there's been a lot of debate over how these acts would be defined and then what groups are protected under hate, hate crime provisions. The FBI currently has approximately 30 different groups that are protected under hate crime acts. Uh, let me just interrupt to ask, how are they protected? Meaning that they can, one can bring charges of a hate crime because it's targeting a particular okay. class of people. So it may target an individual, but in the name of attacking a broader class of people. So there are about 30 classes that are, that fall under that umbrella at this point. The other trick, though, is in the fact that for a hate crime to be recognized as such, it needs to be reported to local police, and then it has to be reported by local police to the FBI to show up in hate crime statistics or to be be dealt with under that rubric. And so we see a lot of slippage at all those levels. But my impression is, again, from your research, that when many of these crimes are committed, Donald Trump's name or or philosophy is often invoked. I think that's been true certainly since the election and, uh, and and a bit prior during the campaign. The SPLC estimated that around the time of the election, approximately 30 percent of documented acts of hate either directly or indirectly invoked Donald Trump or the kind of campaign ideas around making America great again. We're talking uh, with uh, David Cunningham of Washington University. He is an authority on the issue of hate crimes and hate groups. And uh, the conversation has been focusing on how the number of groups has kind of leveled off. However, the number of hate crimes uh, has increased uh, in recent months. Uh, David, where is this taking us? Well, I think it's clarifying our recognition of how we need to be vigilant against these sorts of acts. I mean, so we really have two interrelated problems, but distinct in some way, is is we need to be attentive to the factors that drive the rise of the infrastructures, the organizational infrastructures that enable people to attach to white nationalist and white supremacist circles, to be inculcated into those sorts of ideologies and ideas. But we also need to be attentive to the environments where people feel the license to intimidate and terrorize people because they are perceived to be part of a larger group that's being targeted. And so these are, again, related problems, but they're distinct problems. And so when we think of the legal challenges involved here and we think of what we do to protect people in our own communities, we have to be attentive to both sides of the equation here. Well, that is a tricky road to uh, maneuver, to negotiate, isn't it? It certainly is. Yeah. Let's talk about Charlottesville for a moment. It seems to me that uh, in recent months that may be the most specific and glaring example of the kind of thing we're talking about. Certainly. I mean, it's it was seen as uh, the largest white nationalist, white supremacist gathering in public in more than two decades, certainly. And uh, it is an event that, again, in public space, we're bringing more than a thousand uh, people who affiliated with that world into a single space and in confrontation with the citizens of Charlottesville. And so we have a situation where not only are these people mobilizing together in large numbers, but we're also had in effect the license to be aggressive and to terrorize and intimidate uh, the people of Charlottesville. Um, And so it created a precedent, I think, uh, both for our expectations around that world, but also how that sort of action should be policed and the dangers of not vigilantly policing those kinds of actions. Would you be looking for more Charlottesvilles? 
I would hope not. I think what we're looking for are, or what we're looking at are efforts to create more Charlottesvilles. I think one of the lessons from Charlottesville has come from the severe criticism that has come to the the police departments in Charlottesville locally and, and Virginia statewide in terms of creating space for intimidation and violence to occur. So what people are characterizing as a sort of a stand-down approach in terms of what the police were doing that day, I think what we've seen in the less successful attempted follow-ups to Charlottesville has been a much different style of policing where there's been a pronounced effort to separate protesters and counter-protesters and to control space in a way that does not allow the white nationalist factions to intimidate and commit violence on the people who are there to oppose them. Do you think, uh, David, that part of the problem is what appears to be an erosion of confidence in police in recent years and months? Well, I think we shouldn't detach those kinds of kinds of broader issues. I do think that we have a situation historically where the police in a variety of contexts, and I had done a lot of research on the civil rights era Ku Klux Klan, and we had similar phenomena with the police where they would be monitoring these white supremacist groups. But fundamentally, beyond the particular goals around white supremacy, the, the groups like the KKK saw themselves as trying to preserve the status quo in a certain way. So they didn't have an anti-establishment orientation. And oftentimes what that meant is there was a perception that the police were willing to uh, sympathize and work with those groups in the way that they wouldn't against, say, civil rights organizations that were seeking to change the status quo and were often targeted quite differently. And so when people see the police standing down in Charlottesville or there are more recent discoveries and accusations around white supremacist violence in California where new court records have shown that the police were taking information from neo-Nazi informants and trying to protect their identities and treating the anti-fascist groups that were opposing the neo-Nazis as suspects and and seeming to to differentiate how they protect both sides of the uh, of this conflict, you know, I think this exacerbates our sense that we need to be really vigilant about how the police are treating uh, both sides of the conflict. And in some cases, perhaps police the police. Well, I think it's important to have watchdog groups that are monitoring how the police are doing this. You know, I think there have been efforts more recently. One of the follow-ups to Charlottesville was in Shelbyville, Tennessee. Uh, And one of the things we see in Shelbyville was a pronounced effort by the police to do what I was saying before, which is to see themselves as a buffer between the two groups. And this, by its nature, created a sense of neutrality around the police, where they were always between the two sides. They had fencing separating the two sides, and they weren't seen as oriented to one side or another which was not true in Charlottesville. Police training, I guess, uh, has to be looked at in terms of uh, dealing with these kinds of situations. Yeah, I think there's actually a surprisingly small amount of standardization around how police deal with what they might refer to as civil unrest. And, you know, part of it is that in a lot of communities, it's a relatively rare event. Um, So we don't see a lot of even training in terms of how police deal with crowds, how police deal with very contentious uh, sort of pressure-packed public demonstrations. And so I I do think it's important both to develop standards and best practices, which do exist, but also to disseminate those in a broader way to police departments. As you indicated earlier, you're an expert, I think, on the Ku Klux Klan. What is the status of the Klan today? The Klan today is a very factionalized world. There are many more Klan organizations that we would have seen, say, during the civil rights era. 
But part of that, that is not a signal of the power of the Klan, but really the fracturing of the Klan's following. And so we may see several dozen Klan organizations that are active. There are four separate KKK organizations that are active in the state of Missouri currently. But all four of those groups have quite small followings. In some cases, predominantly their presence is online rather than gathering in any sort of public spaces. So the Klan is really, I think, predominantly has maybe what we might see as a symbolic cachet, meaning that they're very recognizable. But I think the groups that have energy and momentum in terms of bringing in younger followers are not groups like the KKK, but some of the groups I mentioned earlier, like Vanguard America, Identity Europa, Traditionalist Workers Party. Sticking with the KKK for just a moment, it's always been associated with uh, anti-African American activities. And those cases where they are active, is that still the case? Or have they branched out to also um, intimidate, if you will, conduct violence against Muslims and immigrants? I think the KKK has also always fundamentally had a white supremacist worldview, but that worldview really encompasses all of the groups that you're mentioning. So this worldview has been anti-black, certainly, at the center of it, but also these groups have been strongly anti-Semitic. They've been often strongly anti-immigrant, certainly anti-Muslim. And so I think you see all of that rolled into a single ideology here. And so I, I think the, the range of targets uh, that groups like the KKK focus on are, are going to encompass all of these groups. It seems to me that in recent years, the KKK has, has tried to kind of rehabilitate its image somehow. I think of the, of the signs in various communities where this street is being cleaned up by members of the KKK. Is it working? I wouldn't say that it's working. I think the the Klan has for a long time tried to develop a, a civic face to itself. And, you know, they often have trumpeted going all the way back to the 20s when the Klan had millions of members and was active nationwide. They would always trumpet their, their charitable acts, the fact that they were predominantly a civic organization. Certainly, this was a mask to obscure their terroristic actions and, and underside. I think the Klan has continued to... Uh, tried to develop that side of its organization, it's very difficult to find any results on that side or or to believe that that is anywhere near the primary reason that anyone would affiliate with a group like that. We have to put a bottom line to all of this. Uh, what would you wish the takeaway would be from people listening to this, uh, given your research? Well, I, I think it's important to maintain vigilance. And I think there have been a lot of inspiring acts along these lines to understand that we can't always count on the government to, to create a consistent climate, a top-down climate to deal with some of these groups and to really focus both on the fact that these organizations can thrive beneath the surface, which is what we've seen again over the last 15 years, but also in particular political climates can really bubble up to the surface and be active in these ways. And so we need to be vigilant in both times. You know, I think we tend to underestimate the presence of these white supremacist factions in times where we see the political climate being actively aligned against these things. These, the, these forces still exist. And then again, when we see these people acting out, as we have over the last year, two years here, uh, we certainly need to, as communities, step in and say, we condemn this action. We do not want these people representing our community or present publicly in, in our communities espousing these, these hateful ideas. And by the same token, many of these groups, as we in, we've indicated, tend to be extremely violent 
there would be a certain reluctance on the part of uh, Joe Citizen, Joe Sixpack, if you will, to uh, report suspicions. That could be true. And I think there's also uh, understandable reluctance to show up publicly to to confront these sorts of groups. And I think confronting isn't necessarily the answer. I think there are many ways to express opposition to these groups that are not necessarily confrontational. And one of the, I think, the really hopeful things is that what a lot of these white supremacist groups are worst at, as it turns out, is thinking tactically about how to organize in public. Um, Because for so many years, their mode of organization has really been below the surface, about keeping a low profile and finding ways to raise consciousness below the surface and act under the cover of darkness. They are not very good at knowing how to organize in public space. And it's interesting when you listen to leaders like Matthew Heimbach of the Traditional Workers Party, Richard Spencer, as you mentioned before, they're often pointing to say, the civil rights movement and other left-wing uh, social movements as models of how to organize. So they obviously don't agree with their ideas, but they do respect the fact that these groups knew how to organize people tactically and in public. And so I think oftentimes we see counter-protests that are much better organized than the white nationalist mobilizations themselves. However, if they begin to feel more comfortable coming out of those shadows, perhaps their tactic and strategies will improve. Yeah, I mean, that's what the leaders keep saying is that they're trying to develop their ability and their capacity to do those things. And I think it's an open question whether they're going to be able to. But the the strong opposition to their efforts to do so certainly hinders their ability to put this into practice. David Cunningham, thank you. Thank you very much. David Cunningham of Washington University on hate crimes. Archive versions of past St. Louis on the Air programs are available for download or podcast at stlpublicradio.org slash stlonair. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening. I'm Don Marsh.